0: Thank you, Larry and Mary Jane, that was beautiful. After thinking about it a bit, I've decided that the reading that I had initially planned for today might not be as additive as I had hoped, so I'm gonna move right into this sermon, if it's all right with you. Later today, most of us will ask the question, what's for dinner? This is a common question. It is a practical question. It is one that we ask hundreds thousands, and perhaps even tens of thousands of times over the course of our lives. If we enjoy food and have plenty of it, this can be a pleasurable question. Depending on who's doing the cooking, this question may arouse delight or dread. If food is an area of struggle, or if we don't have enough, this can be a painful question. Whatever our circumstances, I'd argue that this seemingly simple question is surprisingly complex. The question of what's for dinner is another way of asking, what shall we eat? A question that I bet many here have grappled with at various points in our lives. In classic UU fashion, I don't claim to possess any simple or prescriptive answers. However, I believe that the question is worth exploring. What we eat may be a function, a function of availability and access, cultural tradition, religious or spiritual conviction, economic means, personal preference, health considerations, or any number of different reasons. What we eat on any given day provides a snapshot into how we view ourselves and offers a window into how we perceive our relationship with the world around us. In second grade, I had a teacher who told us, you are what you eat. At the time, I failed to realize the literal truth of her words, that our physical bodies are a direct product of what we eat and drink. Our ability to transform apples and asparagus, carrots and corn, and water and wine into the infinitely complex systems of a human body is something that is truly incredible. As a kid in the Chicago suburbs, my idea of the perfect dinner was a bacon cheeseburger at Ed DeBevick's, a 1950s-themed diner, or a deep-dish cheese pizza from Lou Malnati's. As a college student in Amherst, it was a slice of pizza from Antonio's, or a late-night cheeseburg calzone from D.P. Doe. After college, I moved to Washington, D.C., and initially lived with my aunt, uncle, and my cousin Alexandra. At the time... Alexandra was an intellectually precocious five-year-old. From imagining the suffering experienced by animals that would become food for humans, she decided that she would no longer eat meat. After considering her position, my aunt also began to eat a vegetarian diet out of respect for other sentient beings and in solidarity with her daughter. At the time, however, I only wanted to eat cheeseburgers. what we want and what we need are often two very different things. With respect to food, this point was made beautifully by Henry David Thoreau. Recently, while rereading Walden, I came across this humorous gem. He wrote, One farmer says to me, You cannot live on vegetable food solely, for it furnishes nothing to make bones with. And so, he religiously devotes a part of his day to supplying his system with the raw material of bones, walking all the while he talks behind his oxen, which, with vegetable-made bones, jerk him and his lumbering plow along, in spite of every obstacle. As it turns out, we might not actually need what it is that we want. About eight years ago, in the process of dealing with some personal inner turmoil, I began to develop a meditation and yoga practice. And over time, meat began to fall out of my diet. The watershed moment, however, came in November of 2009 when I read Eating Animals by Jonathan Saffron Foyer. I was reading in bed, and I remember putting the book down and thinking that if what he had written about the modern methods of animal food production was actually true then the cheese pizza that I'd eaten for dinner that night would be my last. The next morning, I began to do my own research, and I learned that what he had written was factually correct. And for the past seven years, I've eaten a vegan diet. When asked about my dietary choices, I typically make some mention of my health, the health of animals, or the health of the environment. While I believe these to be true, I also realize that an overriding explanation is simply because I can, because I have the luxury of choice. I have the access and means to procure healthy plants that nourish and fuel my body. And I am married to a person who respects my choices while making different ones herself. If I were a Buddhist monk living in the Nepalese, Himalayas, I'd drink yak butter tea. And if I were an Inuk living in rural Alaska, I'm pretty sure that I'd eat seal. If I was stranded on a life raft in the Pacific Ocean, I'd eat whatever I possibly could. I think, though, of the seven principles and the six sources of the UU tradition. Specifically, the seventh principle, respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. And the sixth source, the spiritual teachings of Earth-centered traditions which celebrate the sacred circle of life and instruct us to live in harmony with the rhythms of nature. I'm reminded that long before we called this place home, and long before Thoreau penned Walden, the Algonquin peoples populated this land for thousands of years and lived by these profound and beautiful words. They chose to eat animals, but they did so with a measure of mindfulness, care, and respect that is in short supply today. While a meaningful percentage of food is consumed in a habitual and mindless manner, something that I find incredibly exciting is the shift that I sense in the tides of our collective consciousness around food choices. I see a growing awareness of what we eat and how our decisions about food ripple forth in the world around us. This change is exemplified by the story of my dear friend Arturo, who is one of the most kind, humble, and remarkable people I've ever met. Arturo grew up in Laredo, Texas, a town on the US-Mexico border that is 96% Hispanic and has an annual per capita income of $15,000. There is no Deborah's Natural Gourmet in Laredo, and the nearest Whole Foods is over 150 miles away. In eighth grade, after thinking about it carefully, Artero came to the conclusion that he could no longer eat animals. This left him with a diet. that was primarily black beans, rice, iceberg lettuce, and flour tortillas. At the time, he had never met anyone who had made a similar decision. In addition to a heart of gold, Artero also has a goodwill hunting style brain. He won full scholarships to all seven of Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Stanford, MIT, the University of Chicago, and the University of Texas. The flight up to Boston to start at Harvard was his first time on an airplane. He was extremely interested in global patterns of food consumption and the larger implications of these choices. His curiosity led him to internships in Sao Paulo, Beijing, and Geneva, Switzerland. I first met him when he was an intern on my team in Mumbai. Arturo's belief is that science and technology allow us to devise plant-based food solutions that outperform animal-based foods on every key variable. He felt compelled to work in this area. However, as the first of seven siblings to attend college, there was also considerable family pressure to secure a good job. Nevertheless, he turned down investment banks, consulting firms, a giant New York hedge fund, two positions in the Obama administration and Google to move to San Francisco with no money, no job, and only a vision for what he thought might be possible. In short order, he founded a food technology company called Clara Foods. It's essentially a biotech startup that has devised a plant-based egg white that is a game changer. Instead of a pitch that proclaims, thou shalt not eat the eggs of chickens, they say, would you like a more delightful meringue, a fluffier blueberry muffin, or better tasting chocolate chip cookies? Would you like similar protein structures and baking properties as eggs, but with a dramatically longer shelf life? Would you like something that costs 15% of what egg whites cost? As it turns out, the answers to all of these questions is a resounding yes. Yes. Food giants like Nestle and General Mills are vying to access their technology, and Silicon Valley billionaires are tripping over themselves to invest in this company. Their plant product soundly beats the animal status quo and is serving as a catalyst for significant change in the food industry and the way that we eat. Artero asked the question, what shall we eat? And it appears that he has found an answer that is better for everyone save the current producers of eggs. Change is possible, and what we chose yesterday need not necessarily be what we choose today. And so, when the daily question arises, what's for dinner? I encourage each of us to consider the broader question of what shall I eat, to sit with that question, to wrestle with that question, and if we see areas for improvement, to change. I believe that the very act of asking this question, regardless of our answers and conclusions, will benefit each of us individually and collectively. Every single day, I ask the question, what will I eat? It is a vital question. It is an important question. It is an interesting question and it is a difficult question. It is a question worth considering. May it be so.